Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. there. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you for joining us. I just spoke with Christine Yano about her new book, Pink Globalization, Hello Kitty's Trek Across the Pacific. And this was published in 2013 by the Duke University Press. It's a book about Hello Kitty as an icon, as an entity, as a character. As- there. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you for joining us. I just spoke with Christine Yano about her new book, Pink Globalization, Hello Kitty's Trek Across the Pacific. And this was published in 2013 by the Duke University Press. It's a book about Hello Kitty as an icon, as an entity, as a character, as an object, as an image, as an idea, and many other aspects of how we can think about a thing, an individual, a character, a locus for cultural phenomena and cultural practices. But it's also a book about much more than Hello Kitty. And in many ways, it's a model for how to use a particular icon as a window through which to see and to be able to envision larger social and cultural practices and processes at work, both in a particular society, but also um, in the context of this book, in terms of larger transnational processes and larger transnational flows that are perhaps local in a different way. And that also speak to larger histories of commodities, of the way we think about relationships and the practices and production of them, the way we think about cultural items and icons and the the kinds of power that they have to generate reactions at the level of the individual, at the level of the family, of the household, and also perhaps of the nation and, and beyond. So it's a really fun book to read, but in saying that, um, I also want to emphasize that it's also very sophisticated. It's really interesting, and I learned a whole lot from reading this. It's also a great read, so I highly recommend it. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the book, and I hope you enjoy the conversation to follow. I definitely did. We're here today to talk with Christine Yano about her new book, Pink Globalization, Hello Kitty's Trek Across the Pacific. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Christine, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate this opportunity. Sure. So, Christine, could you start us off by saying a little bit about your background as an academic? How did you come to the field of anthropology and specifically to the field of the anthropology of Japan? Well, I am of Japanese ancestry. I'm a third-generation Japanese-American, born and raised in Hawaii, but went off away from Hawaii for schooling, so my degrees are from Stanford and University of Michigan. Um, And I think I actually came to anthropology through the field of ethnomusicology, which is not reflected in this book, Um, but it's it's just um, that my um, I am also a musician, and um, you know, growing up in Hawaii, growing up around um, a lot of Japanese popular culture in Hawaii as as just kind of daily fare, Hello Kitty was always kind of there, and um, it's not as if she was. Um, I, it's not as if I um, she was like a, a toy of mine or an icon of mine at all. I don't have a personal relationship to Hello. Kitty, but she's there in the background, and you see her in stores all over Hawaii. So when I was hired by the University of Hawaii um, to teach courses in anthropology of Japan, um, and that was in 1997, I developed a course on Japanese pop culture, thinking that would appeal to students, and it certainly does. It continues to do so. And I decided that, you know, one lecture would be on Hello Kitty, and um, it was it was it was a great it was great fun to develop the course and then students responded really well to Hello Kitty because so many of them knew about it, um, but it sort of took off from there. Mm-hmm. So the book at hand, um, as is probably clear from the nature of, of 
we were just talking about for listeners, but I'll just uh, reiterate it in case um, listeners haven't yet had a chance to encounter the book. The book is a study of Hello Kitty as both a global commodity and a global icon. And it focuses on the period from the late 1990s to the present, which is a period in which her global reach extended to the point that she became, in the words of the company that produces her, a world idol. So, so you've talked a little bit about the genesis of your interest in the project, and you talk at the beginning of the book about um, specifically the genesis of uh, this project as it uh, took more concrete form. But can you situate this for us within the larger trajectory of your research? How did you decide to generate a book length um, a book length object about Hello Kitty, and how does this fit within your larger research interests? Well, you know, I was never intending to do research on Hello Kitty. I was never intending to write a book on Hello Kitty. You know, my academic interests in some ways lie elsewhere, more with music, etc., and, and those have been sources of previous books. Um, but uh, as I said, I was developing a course on Japanese pop culture at the University of Hawaii, where I teach, and um, after the first lecture on Hello Kitty, I thought it was just hilarious. And I went back to the department and you'll have to understand that at the University of Hawaii, many, many of the department's secretaries are Japanese American. And so I, I told my secretary kind of in jest, guess what I talked about in class? And I said, Hello Kitty. Well, I didn't realize that she was a Hello Kitty fan. And she, and indeed, uh, the Sanrio, the company that makes Hello Kitty um, website, was uh, was bookmarked on her computer. And this kind of thing just, just floored me. So she said, well, have you seen their website? And, you know, I hadn't. So I went back to my office, looked at the Sanrio website, and it was just amazed at the world that it opened up. At that point, I still wasn't going to do research on it, but, you know, every every year I would um, offer this course on Japanese pop culture, and these research topics kind of come to you as you understand both the fascination, your own fascination as an anthropologist, as a researcher, as well as the student's excitement that somebody is taking something like Hello Kitty so seriously. So these things evolved, and I think that, you know, it, it has very little relationship to my previous research topics, which are on music, which actually are on airline stewardesses and, and beauty queens. So it's, it's like, you know, music, music, airline stewardesses, beauty queens, and Hello Kitty. The, the, the link between those dots is not quite clear. But somewhere in my mind, you know, I am interested in Japan, probably from growing up as Japanese American, but you know, I don't consider this a biological link. Anyway, interest in Japan, but also interest in ways in which things Japanese have gone beyond its borders. And certainly Hello Kitty has done that. It may seem like it's not related to music, but and we'll get to this later, but I do recall one of the interviews um, that you transcribed so generously for us and here mentions um, a link between Hello Kitty and an idea of rock and roll. So maybe we can tease out some connection. Um, so, Christine, because you mentioned, um, you've, you've talked about teaching a couple of times, um, I'd just like to ask you very briefly, because this is, um, it's, I'm, I, th- I know I am, and I, I think many of our listeners are very interested in um, ways to integrate our understanding of the researcher as a, a whole teacher-scholar, right? Because those are both really important parts of our jobs. It's what we spend most of our time doing. It's not just research, it's also teaching. So because um, specifically you've mentioned the early genesis of this came from your experience teaching, did you find it all when you were sitting down to put together the book um, to structure the chapters, to think about the nature of the arguments or your approach to this as a research topic, that the way you were teaching it and or the way students were responding to the topic in the context of class had some sort of um, significant material impact on the way that the research went or the way that your writing or structuring of the book ultimately turned out? Well, that's an interesting proposition, and I'd love to say absolutely yes, <laughs> but things don't happen in quite as logical a fashion as that. Um, probably in in hindsight, you know, with the kind of 2020 hindsight that we all um, that we have the conceit to hold, maybe, um, you know, it's it's logical that where I 
understood students' interests, where I felt that things grabbed them when I threw out ideas, um, you know, with, with Hello Kitty as a kind of a prompt, form, you know, helps me formulate what is of interest here. Because as a researcher, as well as a teacher, we're always interested to communicate. So what communicates to people, I think, structures the way we think about things. So I guess in hindsight, yes, but at the time, probably no great plan. It was just whatever whatever was of interest to me. But granted, our interests as researchers are stimulated by the kind of teaching that we do. Um, yeah, so, um, you know, teaching and research, I love it when they go hand in hand. And in this case, this is a piece of research that came out of teaching. Great. So let's get into that research and then make our way directly into the book because it's a really fun book and also a really fascinating book to read. This isn't, um, this is a book in which, or this is a book that is, has a lot in it. There's a lot to learn in here. It's very, very stimulating whether or not you imagine yourself as somebody initially who's interested in Hello Kitty. So it's certainly for people who are inherently interested in Hello Kitty and those fans, but it's doing much, much more work than that. And it's really a very sophisticated ethnography. And so let's get right into it. So the title of the book is drawn from what winds up being one of the central arguments of the work. And that's an argument that embeds a history of Hello Kitty and all that it, that history entails within a process that you call pink globalization. This is the title of the book. So right off the bat, um, before we get into the details of this, let's take apart that concept and talk about what that means. So can you talk a little bit about this concept of pink globalization? And maybe we should start with the pink and then, <laughs> and then we can get to the globalization. So why pink and pink globalization? Sure. Well, well, you know, when I pink is a topic, um, a color that I like to riff on. I mean, I just I had great fun in putting together that section of the the, the initial chapter because pink has so many meaning meanings. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm coming from a Euro Euro American um, you know perspective, and I I was fascinated by exploring pink itself. And let me just back up to say that if you go to a Sanrio, if you go to the Sanrio um, headquarters in Tokyo and in, um, at the time that I was doing research, South San Francisco, um, pink is everywhere. Pink is everywhere. So pink is unavoidable as kind of a theme color of Sanrio. If you go into a Sanrio store these days, pink is kind of mixed in with all kinds of colors, black, some reds, blues, etc. But pink as a kind of, you know, symbolic, iconic color for the company and for Hello Kitty is always there even if, you know, there are other colors that seep in. So that's, that's an obvious link to pink. And then, and then the opportunity to use pink as a prompt for thinking through, obviously, gendered issues, children's issues, um, and as well as sexuality, was just, how, how could I not do that as a scholar? And that kind of exploration was just great fun. And then thinking through the various kinds of pinks that have infused American pop culture um, with things like I found out about Mamie Eisenhower. I was doing a lot of this research and just it's kind of laugh out loud research. So pink, you know, so a Mamie pink and Elsa Schiaparelli pinks. Um, so pinks of various sorts were just just great fun to dip my finger into. And then here in Hawaii, pink has had a very symbolic valence in Hawaii. Pink as the color of romance, as the color of vacations, as the color of honeymoons, as the color of, um, oddly enough, a very important industrial tycoon, Henry J. Kaiser, who developed a number of the hotels in Hawaii. Um, pink was his color for some reason. So what pink evokes was really um, fun for me to explore. Um, I, I don't know if uh, your listeners have been to Hawaii, but one of the earliest and um, symbolic hotels in Waikiki is the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, which has a kind of Moorish atmosphere and is pink. So known as the kind of the grand dame of hotels in Hawaii and the pinkness of it. Um, so it, 
you know, even saying these things might cause some of your listeners to look around and look around for some of the pinkness that surrounds them, both in a contemporary way as well as historically. Uh, and, you know, I didn't, my editors wouldn't let me do the whole book on pink, which maybe I'll do in a future book. <laughs> but but when you think about the pinkness, it's um, it's a very, very fun color to explore. <laughs> and given, just to, to jump in before we get to globalization um, as, as part of this um, dyad that makes up the title, given um, your interest or given our the nature of our conversation that's already been making links between the book and teaching, have you ever actually taught, um, especially given your background in music, you identi- self-identified as a musician and talked about your previous work in music. Have you ever taught any courses for students on color and or sound um, as sort of topics of exploration? I haven't taught it, but I would love to. You know, the whole synesthesia between sound, color, taste, etc. It's it's a delicious topic. Mm-hmm. And, it's and um, part of the book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, I would love to. You, you've just identified the course that I would like to teach. <laughs> <laughs> the Anthropology of the Senses. Yes. Which is, a, you know, which is a, a very valid um, part of anthropology today. Thank you. So let's get to globalization. Um, this is the <laughs> other part of the title and the other part of one of these big concepts in the book. How does pink globalization relate to, but also differ from other dominant modes of globalization in terms of broader discussions of commodities and trade in the literature that you're engaging with? Sure. Um, you know, I think that when I when I started, say, back in 1997, um, globalization, even then, which is, it's not that long ago, was really conceptualized and theorized as from the West to the rest. And um, Stuart Hall has written about this and in very broad strokes. And so, and, and you have, you know, the anti, um, anti-globalization arguments against um, McDonald's, against Starbucks, and it goes on and on. Um, and here was a, the opposite example. And, you know, maybe these days um, people might think, well, of course, we have a lot of Japanese things. But in the theorizing of globalization, had not yet really embraced that, that globalization can be kind of going in many, many directions. So the major theorists of globalization have really talked about from the West to um, outward. And so this was kind of the opposite um, direction. So that's one very obvious kind of um, sort of mode of interest of mine. But as I was reading through some of the corporate literature and some of the literature on Sanrio itself, it really struck me the degree to which globalization was just inherently part of um, the 1970s in Japan and, um, and, and part of Sanrio's development. So that Hello Kitty was not just, we're going to develop this, this product for Japanese. And, oh, by the way, we might think of selling it elsewhere if she does well. It wasn't that, but that the, that the you know, the, the Sanrio itself and Shintaro Tsuji, the, the head of Sanrio, was really always thinking of Hello Kitty as a global product. And that just astonished me um, because we like to think, oh, you know, the globalization is something that the West owns, but hardly, hardly. And uh, so it was, it was, I thought that, you know, taking globalization as foundational to Hello Kitty as a, pro- as, as a product was really important. I mean, think of her name, even. It's, it's not, you know, um, Asako something, something cat. Um, but, you know, Hello Kitty, which is a kind of Japlish. I mean, I don't think that we would develop a product quite called that. Um, but anyway, so, so, you know, I think it complicates our notion of Japan. It complicates our notion of globalization. And it complicates our notions of what happens to goods as they travel, what are the pathways by which they travel, and how do we make sense of them? 
And in fact, the, um, the narrative structure of the book actually takes us along those travels with Hello Kitty, of Hello Kitty, but it starts off in Japan, and that's where we're situated for the first chapter. Now, chapter one introduces Hello Kitty in the context of Japan, but specifically in the context of kawaii culture in Japan. So this is, I think, a good place to start getting into some of the major concepts introduced here that have reverberations um, throughout the rest of the book and the rest of the chapters. Now, well, you know, yeah, sorry. Um, I think that when I first um, started doing this this research in, say, in 1997, 1998, in the, in the late 90s, the whole notion of um, kawaii or cuteness or the whole cool Japan movement that has kind of latched on with uh, anime and manga, and that had not yet been quite so popular, at least um, in within the general population of the United States. It was there, of course, with Japanese Americans, with Asian Americans, but not so much. So, um, you know, these days, maybe people can just say kawaii culture or cute culture and automatically think Japan or automatically think Asia, but far less so then. And that made it, I thought, important for me to at least explain something of Hello Kitty in situ, in its birthplace of Japan, how we have to see it within the context of the development of girl culture there in the 1970s with the development of what I'll call cute culture, kawaii culture. Kawaii can be glossed as the English word cute. And to situate it really within the various kinds of meanings given kawaii um, in Japan in the 1970s and continuing on, which includes not only the cute, but also the sexual. And juxtaposing those two, which may seem a bit of an affront in the United States, is considered, is is fairly normalized in Japan, not separated out quite so clearly as we try to do in the United States. So um, I think, you know, starting with a chapter like that, which explores Sanrio's place within Japan's girl culture, developed from the 1970s and then continuing on through the 80s, etc., was really important. Um, and it was it was fun to do. <laughs> now, one of the interesting things that's happening in your treatment of kawaii here in this chapter is it's not um, it's not only situating. Hello Kitty within kawaii culture in the context of Japan, but also making a very specific, very sophisticated argument that it's there's something about kawaii that's responsible for the efficaciousness of Hello Kitty as a nodal point. And you, you mentioned here a nodal point of both juncture and rupture in this flow of transnational popular culture. So it becomes kawaii not just, um, you know, in this... Um, in the Japanese context, but as something that's responsible for motivating um, and explaining this transnational flow. So do you want to talk about that at all? Well, I think what was interesting in in thinking through Japan and then thinking through where Hello Kitty has gone since then outside of Japan, um, it's interesting to use kawaii as a kind of touchstone, as a kind of nodal point, as a, as a way to maneuver the terrain of gender politics um, in Japan and outside of Japan, um, and that within the context of very much commodity culture. Um, so I, you know, I, I thought that um, the doing so is is really important for for having a broader perspective on where to go with this object, Hello Kitty. Um, and just a, I just wanted to say something about my approach to popular culture, um, which is I, I think it um, both influences my teaching as well as my research. So I don't claim to know every single thing there is about Hello Kitty. And true fans probably know far more than I do. And so I'm very, I'm very upfront and humble with the limitations of my knowledge of, of either Hello Kitty or anime, manga, other things that I end up teaching. But um, what I always tell my students is if I can use something from popular culture, um, both as a kind of stepping stone to, for ideas, as ways to generate thinking through 
these ideas. So if they can be kinds of prompts, intellectual prompts, or as well as a, a kind of um, ways in which to speak directly to students because they might be consumers, then that's part of my goal. To, so not to get all the, all the factual details about, about all the anime, all the manga, or even every little detail about Hello Kitty and all the products that have been generated, etc. Rather than that, to use um, Hello Kitty and many other items of popular culture as ways to talk through cultural processes. So one of the cultural processes or um, cultural phenomena that comes up early in this part of the book that's particularly fascinating that you, the book seems to use Hello Kitty as a way to think through and talk through that I found um, incredibly interesting and useful was a concept uh, or the, what we might call the process, the practice of play. Um, and we can you, you bring up the importance of play, um, sometimes linking it with asobi, um, sometimes not throughout the book. So um, would you want to talk a little bit about the centrality of play as a kind of cultural process, maybe an example of the kind of thing that you were talking about, and how this particular example of Hello Kitty as a transnational global icon, especially early in this book, gets at something important that you feel um, is at work here in terms of play as a cultural process. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's, that's great that you brought that up. And, you know, I should hire you as a publicist for the book. <laughs> because, indeed, I mean, I took, um, well, Asobi, which means, um, can be English glossed as play. Asobi, uh, the Japanese concept, is really an important um, generator of culture, practices, and really an outlook as well as a frame um, for various kinds of elements in Japan, and they include um, children, they, but they also include the sexual. So the same word, asobi, can be used for the games pe- the games children play, as well as the kind of play on words, word play, kind of very sophisticated play, as well as a kind of sexual play. And what I found interesting is, uh, and I think we may use the word play in slightly different ways, slightly different nuances. But the notion that Hello Kitty can provide people with a kind of license to play, um, I thought was was really interesting. What I've included in the book then are various ways by which fans and even detractors um, have have used Hello Kitty as a kind of well plaything, play prompt, um, whatever you want to call it, but that play itself gives a kind of flexibility to the meanings that might be laid upon, say, her lap. <laughs> um, I think it's part and parcel of you know connecting up cute with play and the um, and and generating, of course, sales for Sanrio because Sanrio understands this so well, so well, and uses play as a constant referent. If play allows for greater flexibility in terms of generating new markets for Hello Kitty or any of its other products, then all the better, right? So I I see both as, as working for the consumers, for fans and detractors, as well as for Sanrio as the, the producers, the marketers. And this actually is a great um, place to segue into uh, my next question for you, because not only are some of these icons, like, for example, Hello Kitty windows into or ways touchstones for understanding larger cultural processes, but Sanrio as a company is actually um, embedding an understanding of cultural processes and practices within their marketing strategy in really interesting um, and fascinating in very sophisticated ways, and you are um, you explicate that at length um, in some wonderful accounts in this early part of the book. So some of the specific ways that you mention in this early part of the book that Sanrio is actually incorporating an understanding of cultural and social movements and practices into their strategies is through an emphasis on the importance of happiness, the importance (laughs) of gifting and sociality in the way that they're marketing Hello Kitty as an icon. So um, would you want to talk a little bit about that or any aspect of those phenomena that you find central to what's going on um, here in this first part of the book? 
Right. Well, you know, it was it was it was really interesting, actually quite fascinating for me to go to Sanrio, um, and I went um, to Japan. Uh, to the Sanrio headquarters in Tokyo, as well as to South San Francisco, where the headquarters for the Americas were located. They've since shifted over to Los Angeles. And um, what I found was a combination. On the one hand, it looks like a grand strategy, like they are such they're such superb marketers that they had this grand plan. That's on the one hand, you can believe that. But on the other hand, I found a bit of haphazardness and sort of people, you know, just throwing products out there and seeing what will catch um, and the more the better kind of thing. Um, So some of both, some strategy, but some, you know, luck, but also some failures as, as will happen. I found some of both. Um, And I think that what was, what was interesting was though the, I, I credit a lot to Tsuji, the Shintaro Tsuji, the, the CEO and founder of Sanrio, who to this day, um, and he's officially retired, but, but they tell me that he, he, the employees in Tokyo tell me that he still emails them in the middle of the night <laughs> with things on his mind, and he still shows up at the office every day. Um, and, but his notion is that, um, with his notion that... Um, Children need to play, adults need to play, and that part of what is going to hold society together is this gift giving. So, you know, this, uh, that whole um, the small gift, big smile <laughs> is part of their strategy. Whether you call it a strategy or whether you call it an ethos is, depends on which way you look at it, um, I think is, is actually quite brilliant <laughs> because, you know, it's in some ways, what's brilliant about it is that it becomes an unassailable position, right? What could ever be wrong with giving gifts? Except, of course, if you take a larger perspective and say, yes, but it's, it's putting money into the hands of these, uh, you know, capitalist manufacturers. It's true. It's absolutely true. But on the other hand, it is, it brings smiles to people's faces and um, et cetera. And, you know, the trouble with doing and the difficult thing about doing this kind of corporate research is you don't want to come off as a Pollyanna and you want to kind of straddle that line between critique as well as, as listening with kind of open ears and, you know, an an open mind. Um, And that was rather difficult to do in the book, but I tried when I've, you know, the kind of critique that I've heard, I mean, some people would want me to come down really hard on Sanrio, on Hello Kitty, the mouthless cat, the symbol of Asian female passivity, etc. And that kind of, and I, I do, I include some of that, especially I place it within other critics' voices. Um, but in my mind, you know, that's, that's one side of the story, and that's certainly there. I, I don't deny that in the least. I don't deny the kind of manipulation that, it's, that um, corporations um, engage in. But as an anthropologist, I really wanted to get more than that. So I consider the, the book involving critique plus rather than straight-ahead critique. Um, it's a different, it's a difficult road to hoe, um, but I thought that in my interviews with employees at San Rio, I was struck, and you might say I was naively struck, but I was struck nevertheless by some of the sincerity. Uh, and these sound like such hokey terms, you know, happiness, sincerity, and um, being nice and giving gifts. It sounds so hokey. Um, and then, you know, it made me think, well, is that our problem as intellectuals? That things that, you know, bring smiles to people's faces, are, are that's not where we're supposed to go. <laughs> and and so you know it's I think um, it's sort of like I dare you to write a PhD thesis on you know something that's pleasant. <laughs> um, it's harder to do. It's harder to do and to do in a kind of intelligent way. But I will say that um, you know what I found amongst employees at Sanrio was a kind of genuineness, even amongst people who I wouldn't have expected it. I wouldn't have expected it. (laughs) 
You know, they're in the range of um, kinds of books that I've read and people that I've talked to for uh, the interviews that I do for the New Books Network for both channels. One of the things that's emerging recently across both large fields um, that I interview for, so East Asian studies broadly conceived and also science, technology, and society, is exactly, and so it's really interesting that you're mentioning this, a move toward on the part of many different academics and many different fields, pleasure and an acknowledgement of the importance of pleasure in motivating our work and in a, the importance of starting to explicitly take that on as a kind of critical gesture that is a way of rebelling against, I think, a dominant academic ethos that trains us and that encourages us to train others to look away from pleasure, our own and that of others, as a site of serious intellectual engagement. Well, you know, I, I think, yeah, I mean, that's a that's an interesting observation. And I think that, you know, our um, we hold on to critique so dearly. That's what we're supposed to do as intellectuals. And I think part of this comes from, you know, Marxist, Marxist-based critical theory, um, which, I, which I absolutely embrace. And yet I think, and, and I'm, I take this perhaps as an anthropological point of view, that one might want to look at various kinds of viewpoints. And in some of my other works, I've, I've talked about, um, do you, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, the Rashomon, the film, and the, the Akutagawa short story. It's an, just this kind of multi-perspectival view. Yes. Um, so that there's no single truth, right? There are various ways of, it's a kind of cubist look at whatever it is, the phenomenon, and even defining what the phenomenon is can be seen in various ways. But embracing that... Um, is is part of my goal as an anthropologist. So listening well to all kinds of viewpoints, um, as well as incorporating some of my own. <laughs> well, this certainly comes out in the book. And one of the things that's really striking, at least from the perspective of this reader, of one reader, is the way the book integrates and, and takes seriously and playfully at the same time, a multiplicity of different perspectives without passing judgment. At least it didn't read that way at all to me. And I'm, I'm being completely sincere with you here in saying that. And so not only as we move through the book, do we see um, a kind of biographical account or the construction of a biographical account for Hello Kitty herself. There's also perspectives from um, Sanrio employees. We see um, a discussion of the figures of the, the CEO of the company and the designer of Hello Kitty herself. And then we move into, in the third chapter, a, a different set of perspectives. And these are perspectives not from um, the employees of Sanrio or the people responsible for producing Hello Kitty as an object and as an individual, if, if we can call her that, but people who are consuming Hello Kitty outside of Japan now and primarily in the U.S. and a little bit um, in Canada. So this part of the book actually looks at, a, or one of the major questions you raise in this part of the book is, okay, well, if Sanrio emphasizes friendship and sociology as its core messages, as its core, um, uh, you know, motivating um, discourses that it sends out with and through um, its products, then how does Hello Kitty become a friend? And what kinds of people, right? What, what, what range of people um, take on and, and develop this intimate relationship with Hello Kitty as a friend? So there's a wide range of kinds of fans that you treat um, in this part of the book that range from collectors of various sorts, um, people who look at um, Hello Kitty is a kind of model minority symbol. One IT specialist for the U.S. Navy who claims to be true to Kitty. Um, a, a male fan who thinks about Hello Kitty as a kind of alternative culture. It's a really wonderful, very broad range of kinds of engagement with Hello Kitty as an intimate relation of various sorts. Is there... Are there some examples of fans that you spoke with or um, that you incorporated in this part of the book that stands out to you as particularly notable um, that you'd like to talk about for listeners, especially perhaps for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book yet? Oh, sure. <laughs> and let me just say to the listeners that that process of doing the work, uh, doing the research and interviewing people was not only was it great fun, but it actually quite astonished me. I think because I myself am not 
such uh, what I was like a hardcore fan of any one thing. Uh, you know, I appreciate various kinds of elements, but there's something about fandom that has a strong overlap with religion, for example, in ways that, you know, whether you're a fan of Elvis or Hello Kitty or, or something else, um, it, it gives meaning to your life. And I didn't, you know, it, as I was interviewing people and recording this, you know, in my mind, my jaw dropped constantly <laughs> to hear some of their words. In, and so I thought that there's no way that I can really talk about it. And I wanted them to be able to speak it and that for, so that the reader can maybe have, depends on the reader, of course, but maybe the reader's jaw will drop as well in, you know, hearing the extent of this kind of very intimate relationship of some of the fans to Hello Kitty. And, you know, one, of, one that sticks out in my mind is, um, was uh, with, actually, she was an employee at Sanrio, because what I found out is that um, many of the fans of, some of the biggest fans of Hello Kitty are employees of Sanrio, because, of course, it's their dream job. Anyway, so I spoke with one of the big collectors who, at the time, worked for Sanrio, and she talked about collecting every little thing. That is every little gum wrapper from when she was a child uh, and, and stored them in albums and then and to the point where then her house became full. She moved, she had to move to another house. And But what was touching for me was that she talked about, you know, having, say, a fear of dentists and deciding, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe this Hello Kitty, this, this you know, this mouthless cat can help me through my fear of getting, you know, uh, you know, dental surgery. And that's what she did. She took it with her and you the, know what it was worked. So, what was so touching about, I'm sorry for interrupting, but I just, no. I'm going to break my <laughs> usual rule. And what was so touching about that moment too, is I think she mentions that she, she didn't do that alone, right? The hygienist situated <laughs> Hello Kitty for her. And so it's this really touching moment where you have this, this character or object that's actually creating relationships among right. other people, right? Which is exactly um, the kind of phenomenon that uh, other people who you mentioned in the book talk about as being so important to the, um, the you know, to Hello Kitty as a, as an icon or as a well, presence yeah. in their lives. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think actually the health professions are recognizing this and at least in Honolulu, um, Hello Kitty material is made into nurses' outfits, and so I've I've heard of nurses in hospitals not not a standard practice, but you know the occasional one. Where's Hello Kitty? And um, I uh, actually an elderly gentleman um, friend of mine said that he in in the hospital where he was at, and he was in there for a while. One of the nurses proudly showed him. Well, first of all, he was he was reading my book. And she was so excited to see a book on Hello Kitty. And then she said, well, look at my uniform. And it was indeed, it was a Hello Kitty uniform. <laughs> so I think that, you know, this recognition that put on a Hello Kitty uniform and it might bring a smile to people's faces. And that smile might help some of the healing process in hospitals, which are, you know, um, which is where you would need it. So what can you say to that, you know, as a researcher? How can I criticize that? There's no way. If if something helps the patient, should be not, you know, whether it's Hello Kitty or whether it's marijuana, um, sh shouldn't we recognize it and embrace it and say, well, well, great, it's made their day better. It's helping them. So those are some of those some of the things that I encountered. And you know, even as I talk about it, you know, I just I have to giggle because it's sort of giggle material. Is it not? And maybe part of that giggling is what we have to do as academics, as intellectuals, because oh, we we can't be, you know, secretly stashing our Hello Kitty in our in our briefcases kind of thing. <laughs> but is that maybe that's our problem? <laughs> we can't. <laughs> this is, this is Maybe we can. You know, have a little coin purse in there, and when that you know faculty meeting gets a little contentious, just go look at your coin purse, and there you go. You've solved it <laughs> for yourself, at least. 
Well, of course, as you show in the book, not everyone's a fan, right? Not everyone's in favor. And so in the interest of providing a a wide range of perspectives and kinds of relationships with Hello Kitty as a figure, there's an entire chapter um, on kitty backlash, as you call it here. So Mm -hmm. this chapter looks at critiques of Hello Kitty um, by various sorts of people. And these responses to Hello Kitty that we can characterize perhaps generally as non-positive, as decidedly non-positive, range from the really funny and humorous to the really horrific, right? There, there are some pretty um, oh, yes. horrible uh, relations between Hello Kitty as a figure and some events. Um, certainly you, you mentioned uh, murder, actually, in 1999 in Hong Kong. Oh, right. through. So are there, how, well, how did you decide um, in this part of the book which particular critics, and you, you know, you don't have to talk about individuals if you don't want to, but how did you decide what range of critics here to represent? And are there any in particular that, um, much as we talked about in the previous, cha- when we talked about the previous chapter of the book, any particular critics that you'd like to single out as being particularly important um, to the way you think about these processes and to the kind of work that this part of the book is doing? Yeah, well, you know, it's, and, and I think that part, the reason why there had to be a chapter on Hello Kitty detractors is because it's part of what cute does. So it creates dividing lines, right? Divide, yeah, divide lines between those who love it, those who hate it, etc. So in some ways, it creates a kind of um, heightened reaction, if you will. And so Hello Kitty becomes the cat many people love to hate. Um, and it's it's absolutely, tr- absolutely true. And for those listeners, if you want, just, it's so easy to find examples of this. Um, you can look up, go online and, and just Google in Hello Kitty Hell. Right. And that's, it's, it's marvelous. And, you know, quite likely both Hello Kitty fans as well as Hello Kitty detractors would go on that website because um, he gets people and he, it is a he, um, and he said something about, uh, I think um, this is, he has um, one man's dealing with cute overload and apparently his wife or girlfriend or something loves Hello Kitty. So he's surrounded by it every day. But, you know, people send in their... Um, just absurd Hello Kitty iterations that they've found. Um, and, but he's made kind of a, a, a woe is me kind of joke of it. And that's part of the cute as well, right? In other words, you, you wouldn't do that if it were just one kind of thing. But I think that's, that's kind of the beauty of cute is that it, evo- it evokes both. And even as you're hating it, you, you can laugh at it. So there's a kind of it's it's um, it's horrific in a different kind of way uh, that I think is is really interesting. So the cute itself um, becomes a kind of um, a love hate thing. So the hate had to be there in the book. I have no idea what Sanrio says about that chapter. <laughs> I had no idea, but I think they like the chapter on on themselves. <laughs> One of the really interesting things that happens, actually, as we move into this um, last part of the book or the the second half of the book is we we go from looking at these kind of predominantly positive to predominantly negative, but again, negative and and not necessarily a threatening or um, entirely black and white kind of a way to looking at ways um, that various people have put this icon, this figure, this entity, Hello Kitty, to work in context and to do kinds of work that are actually, in ways, kind of surprising. And so there's an entire chapter here on um, Hello Kitty as a kind of subversive icon, a subversive figure. You talk in this chapter of the book about many kinds of phenomenon, cultural phenomena more broadly, um, that we've mentioned a little bit in the in the first part of this conversation already. You talk about here the importance of the notion of play. You talk about cuteness as enabling a particular um, space. 
or subversion and the ways in which these kinds of subversive appropriations of Hello Kitty in various forms shape um, the pink globalization phenomenon itself. Now, one of the things that comes up here that's, again, um, looking out to a broader cultural and social phenomenon that's quite fascinating that this gives us a window onto is the importance of what you call the wink. So you talk (laughs) about the importance of the wink here. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because that seems to be both germane specifically to the kind of work that's being done with the Hello Kitty figure here, but also a really interesting idea um, to to take out into the way we look at other phenomena more broadly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, one thing, just to start off with, with the figure itself... I, as as I was doing this research, I just started to notice more and more iterations of the Hello Kitty figure winking. And I thought, when I first saw it, it you know, it just sort of passed by. But then you, you, you see it more often. And I thought, that's really interesting. Because it goes so much along with what I think is, is a brilliant move on the part of Sanrio of embracing kind of everything embracing their critics through that wink. And when you think of the work that a wink does, it can be sexual, it can be ironic, it can be humorous, but it it helps you play both sides of the fence, doesn't it? Um, That you might do something outrageous, but you wink, and then it's okay. So I just thought that the, um, the more frequent appearance of a winking kitty and then using that wink as a kind of asobi or play um, is really, really folds into what I consider kind of the, the brilliance of Sanrio in the sense of embracing everything. <laughs> they'll, they'll do it all, and, and partly the, the enabler of doing it all is that wink. Mm-hmm. And that, that includes punk? Embracing punk Hello Kitty, and you talk about uh, worlds of gay and lesbian fandom here, and you also talk about porn citations of Hello Kitty, which is really interesting. I think so. There's a there's a really broad range of ways that this um, what people may not have come to the book imagining as a very diverse kind <laughs> yeah. of an image. It right? does here. It's really interesting. And you yeah, also- you may not you may not want your you know eight year old to use this as your as a chapter book. Right. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe not bedtime reading in terms of all the chapters. Right. <laughs> well, you know, because there's there are, you know various things. I mean, Hello Kitty is that thing that you find on the internet so much um, because of I guess because of the blankness, but also because of the ways in which Hello Kitty has been appropriated. And one of the one of the items, the Hello Kitty items, that gets talked about over and over on the internet is. Um, the vibrator, mm-hmm. right? Which um, Sanrio markets as a as a massager, and so you're and and the people in headquarters demonstrated how you're supposed to use it. So you're supposed to use it kind of um, on your neck, or you know, on that tightness of your shoulders. Mm-hmm. But of course, what are what are internet fans going to do? They're you know, it's far from the neck if you want to put it that way. <laughs> and and you know, in and they. Um, they gave a straightforward explanation of how they tried to modify it so there wouldn't be this, you know, buzz about it as a vibrator, as a sex toy. At the same time, and this is part of the winkingness of Sanrio, at the same time, buzz is buzz. <laughs> and, you know, if it if it circulates the name Hello Kitty yet again, maybe for a different community, then it still means sales. And so what I found with Sanrio as a corporation, yes, it has different rules about this or that. Um, it won't, I, because one of the first questions that I took to Sanrio is, in some ways, where won't Sanrio go? Where won't Hello Kitty go? And one of the things they say is weapons. And then, you know, you pull up the picture of the Hello Kitty AK-47 rifle that you, and then they'll say, oh, we didn't do that. You know, a fan customized it and we have no control over what fans do. Um, So they're, you know, they're not throwing up their hands. They've probably seen all of that through the internet already, (laughs) but they're not trying to shut anything down. I think the only thing they try to shut down are, um, you know, bootleg copies from from other parts of Asia. So they 
it's it's sort of yes and no. It's it's kind of um, you know even if you tell us, we'll we'll say no, but we aren't going to stop it. So I think that you know the overall kind of theme of promotion is the notion of buzz, is the notion of media buzz, which they um, they're very coy about it in some ways, and that's partly corporate strategy that they say they don't do any advertising. Instead, what they do is they try to work the buzz of media. And um, one of the things that they did um, was to sort of go on, quote, quote, fishing expeditions for celebrities. So they'll send out products to potential fans who are celebrities of Hello Kitty. And, you know, if, um, I don't know, uh, Mariah Carey carries a Hello Kitty bag, um, you know, uh, in a show, then... There, that's not advertising per se, but it certainly is part of the buzz. Right. So I think buzz is, is, a, is a great theme for globalization, as well as for the particular kind of buzz that pink might give it, the kind of winking pink might give a particular kind of winking buzz. Right. Now, there's also another set of um, people who are engaging with this idea. So it's not just on the internet, but it's also in galleries that you can see engagements with Hello Kitty as a figure, as an icon, as an image, and an idea. And you have an entire chapter, which is really, really um, interesting for me, that introduces artists in Europe and America and also beyond who've developed pieces around Hello Kitty. And this is especially in the in the 90s and the 2000s. And I think, is it right that none of them received any money to do this? They just... You mean from Sanrio? Right. No. Right. No. Um, no. So these are works. So I'll just mention the names of the three people you um, you treat in depth here, uh, because this is a this is something about the book that re- that potential readers who may not be familiar with the contents of the book might not realize is in here. And this is something that's I think going to appeal to anyone who's interested in art history as well. Um, so this this is the work of Tom Sachs, who's an American male sculptor, Leika Akiyama, a Japanese-American female artist, and Leslie Holt, an American female painter. And their work uh, takes on Hello Kitty and engages with that image in really different ways for really different reasons. Is there any um, particular one of these artists that you talk about who stands out for you that you want to talk a little bit about for listeners, and especially for those who may not be familiar with the work of these artists? Well, um, the Tom Sachs, uh, Tom Sachs um, image is the cover of the book. So if anybody sees, right. um, you can Google it as we, as we speak, and that, that is a Tom Sachs um, sculpture. Um, I don't know if I'd want to single out any artist except for the fact that I was, this is not what I set out to look for <laughs> when I thought I would be doing work on Hello Kitty. I had no idea at the outset that artists would take Hello Kitty seriously or, you know, at least place something like Hello Kitty, an overtly commercial figure in their art. Um, but maybe naive me. I mean, there was Andy Warhol, you know, as part of the pop, pop art phenomenon. So artists have been taking commercial figures. But I guess what stopped me from thinking Hello Kitty was the cuteness factor. That's what stopped me as, as a researcher, assuming that, you know, artists would want that cute in their work. But again, you know, it may be part of the bias of intellectuals in the same way that my conceptualization of art, the bias of, of serious art, would that it, it would be informed by only by critique and not necessarily by, you know, embracing something like uh, a cute icon like like Hello Kitty. Um, and then I, I, I just want to mention that Sanrio, again, it, um, they work so brilliantly hand-in-hand hand with reading the street, reading what's going on out there, and then adding to it. So Sanrio has put on art exhibits with art based on Hello Kitty, and they have not paid any of the artists. Um, they've done it for their anniversary shows, and then they've put out the art of that into um, book compilations. So you can you can buy that on Amazon. Um, so you know Sanrio taking this notion. Artists are using Hello Kitty in their art. Serious artists are, and then you know going one step further and say, well, let's gather all that together and put it on 
as an exhibit um, is, again, to me, part of their corporate flexibility, which I consider a kind of corporate brilliance. So here, you know, we might have thought that um, serious artists might poo-poo Hello Kitty or our products, but no, they're taking it, they're using it, so let's go after them and put them in an exhibit. Um, I just want to mention that... uh, In 2014, in October of 2014, the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles is going to be doing an exhibit in conjunction with Sanrio of Hello Kitty Art. It's going to be half of the exhibit. The other half of the exhibit is going to be based a little bit more on a sociological inquiry of Hello Kitty as a phenomenon. And I may be the curator for that half of the exhibit. So that's coming up in October 2014 at the Japanese American National Museum in Los Angeles. Okay, well, we'll look forward to that. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's, it would be great fun to do. It's The deal's not set, so maybe I shouldn't have said anything publicly, but the exhibit will go go on. I just don't know whether I'm going to be the curator for the non-art part of it. But you've read the book. I should be. I should be. <laughs> <laughs> I've read the book mostly. So, Christine, now that um, we come to what's what is basically going to be the conclusion of our conversation, because I don't want to keep mm-hmm. you for too much longer, I just want to mention um, before we we move to our concluding questions um, that there is a, a final chapter of the book, chapter seven, that looks more that sort of takes then a look out from this focus on Hello Kitty and expands into a consideration of how Hello Kitty has actually shaped the global reach of Japan more broadly and some of the strategies for affecting that reach in different ways, including um, a project known as Cool Japan, including ideas about a kind of super flat Japan and the work of, for example, Murakami Takashi, an artist. And you mention also in here the a way of thinking about Hello Kitty's wink as, in this context, a wink of the contact zone. So is there anything before we move to our conclusion that, um, that you feel is particularly important to the kind of work that that chapter is doing with taking into account these larger arguments that I just mentioned that are happening in this effectively conclusion of the book that you'd like to mention or highlight uh, for listeners, and again, particularly for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it. Right. Um, Yeah, thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. Um, Let me just say that uh, in some ways, you know, this this book, because it was never a book that I intended to write, was a very, very long time in the making. Um, the longest I've ever, you know, had on my mind a book before it comes out into fruition. So if, if you think of me starting this in, say, 1998, and then it only coming out in 2013, well, that's, what, you know, 15 years. Um, but one thing that, that that kind of being with a topic for that long allows you to do is to historicize what you see. So had I just started, if, if I had just done, say, the last, this research, say, in the last three years or five years or something, um, I wouldn't have known or I wouldn't have maybe emphasized that there is a, there was Hello Kitty, certainly, before Cool Japan. And if I had written the book sooner, I might not have included Cool Japan within a Hello Kitty book. So I think it's, it was very it, doing a book like this allowed me to take that Cool Japan moment as a moment in and of itself, as a moment in which the Japanese government is trying to promote their own, quote, soft power through various things, anime, manga, um, and including um, something like Hello Kitty. And it's trying to do this um, as a kind of reaching out to tourism, to, you know, selling global products, um, not only in the United States and other parts of Euro-America, but also in East Asia. So given that, I think it's it's important to think of Hello Kitty as a ways by as as a means by which there's that governmental program, but there are also consumers themselves. Um with with and the previous chapters of the book had talked about global consumers and what they've done with this icon. And so to see this as a kind of ways in which those kinds of elements, from the corporate to the governmental to the fans, the detractors, the artists, etc., might form a kind of contact zone, which is what this book is really about. It's about that contact zone, um, and I think it and it's it, it's about many things, of course, but I think it's that contact zoneness 
of, you know, structured by kawaii, structured by play, structured by the wink, that provides an interesting commentary for us on what it means for products to travel. Well, Christine, thank you so much for making time to talk with me. This has been great fun and really enlightening. Oh, yeah, it's been fun for me, too. (laughs) So is there anything, I know, you know, we only really scratched the surface of the book in this hour that we've been talking. Um, Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? And again, especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it. Well, you know, I, I would love to get reactions from readers. And so it's not something that's in the book, but I see the book as really the start of a conversation. And it's a conversation that I haven't seen occurring so much out there, say about cute in, in a kind of critical way, as well as, you know, embracing different consumers' um, notions of it. So if people do read the book and they have, I would love to hear their feedback. Um, you know, whenever I, for, for several years before this book came out, I gave talks on Hello Kitty all over the place, from Japan to Europe to all over the United States and college campuses, etc. And I asked for kitty sightings. <laughs> In other words, people would then contribute to my knowledge of Hello Kitty by you know, sending me their photos and things. So in some ways, I see this as an opportunity to ask your listeners for their kitty sightings, their kitty thoughts or anti-kitty thoughts, whatever they may be, um, <laughs> um, either generated by this conversation or by reading the book, and, and really for this to be the start of some kind of, say, relationship with them. Yeah, fabulous. And so <laughs> talking about relationships, and the, we talked a little bit about the relationship at the beginning of our conversation between this and your previous work. So let's mm-hmm. move back out again and look forward. Um, now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book, what's next for you? What project or projects are currently inspiring you? Yeah, besides um, hopefully curating an exhibit yes, <laughs> at, yes. at the Japanese American National Museum yes. for the fall of 2014. Besides that, besides that, the new research project I have is totally unrelated. Um, but, you know, almost all of my research projects have not been related to each other. So the new research project is ukulele in Japan. Oh, Right. That's right. That whole, that little instrument that you know people long ago saw Tiny Tim play or Arthur Godfrey, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's it's hugely popular in Japan, as is hula. <laughs> so a kind of transnational phenomenon, both the materiality of the instrument itself, as well as the sound, the music that people play, and what it means to them. And the beauty of this kind of topic, and this may interest students how, on how you choose topics. The beauty of this topic is that I legitimately would do half the research here in Hawaii (laughs) because there are so many Japanese in Hawaii to study ukulele as well as the majority of the um, the biggest musicians, ukulele musicians, make a good chunk of their money yearly by touring Japan. So ukulele in Japan, a transnational phenomenon, and um, I might even link it to happiness. (laughs) Well, as a banjo player, um, I am oh, you're a banjo really player. Okay. excited to read that. <laughs> so All right. Best of luck with that research. I can't wait to see. Um, I can't wait to read that as well. And thank <laughs> you again, Christine, for talking with me. It's really been a pleasure, and I really appreciate your taking the time. Thank you so much. This has been fun. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you again next time.